Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction, the show that explains physics one chat up line at a time. As part two of our two part opening episode, we're looking at the life cycles of stars. So, our chat up line is Are you in the early stages of stellar formation? because things are about to get hot and heavy. Well, at this stage, things have already got hot and heavy. In fact, they're alarmingly dense and producing heat at a rather rapid rate. Hydrogen nuclei are flying around and hitting on each other, then uploading meet-cute stories to subatomic Snapchat. Our star, depending on how heavy it is, is sitting somewhere on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram of stellar evolution in the main sequence, which is that big band across the middle. But what's actually going on in the star? Let's talk about that. The main process here is that the force of gravitational collapse, with the star's mass pulling inwards, is balanced by the energy of nuclear fusion in the core, which pushes the outer layers outwards. This results in lots of different regions for the star. They're kind of layers as you go outwards from the centre. So the star is made of plasma, that's the fourth state of matter, and that's atoms with their electrons stripped away. Now there's the hot, dense core of plasma, where the fusion is taking place right in the heart of the star, and all of the radiation is produced there. Now, for a small layer outside the core, The force of radiation pushing outwards dominates, and heat's transported outwards from the centre, just radially outwards by the radiation. Quickly though, this stops, and the heat starts to be transported by convection in the outer layers of the plasma. So that's the plasma sort of moving around in convective loops. You can imagine it's a bit like a radiator. The central heat engine is the fusion core, and that's the same as the top of your radiator. Then the radiation zone is like the hot air, straight above the radiator. And then the rest of the room, that's like the outer layers of the star. You have hot air from the radiator circulating, and you have hot plasma circulating in the star. Now some of the outermost layers are constantly being pushed away by radiation pressure from inside the star. This means that from any star, there's a stream of particles flying away from it all the time that are just forced away by radiation pressure. Our sun has this as well, and we call it the stellar wind. So what does life look like for a photon produced by a fusion reaction in the heart of our sun for a particle of light that's travelling out of sun? Well, it's a lot like being a really slow walker in a busy underground station. Maybe you're on your phone and everyone else is trying to get on their train. And there are a lot of collisions involved. The photons are constantly being absorbed, re-emitted, broken up, recombined. It's a very non-linear process, they don't just stream straight out. In a star, a photon can travel around one centimetre before colliding or interacting in some way. Now, that means that if a photon's produced in the heart of the star, for the energy from the fusion reaction to make it to the surface, takes a million years. Once it's escaped the star entirely, it only takes a photon eight minutes to reach the Earth, which might be familiar, as the joyful speed of anyone who's ever finally managed to overtake those slow, slow, slow roadhoggers in front of you. You know, there's a couple holding hands, and finally you manage to dodge round them. It's a, it's a glorious feeling. And that's probably how the photon feels after a million years of bouncing around inside the sun and finally reaching the surface. Lots of things can happen to change a star while it's still on the main sequence. For a star, most stars aren't alone. Our sun is actually fairly uncommon because it has no companion. But 80% of all stars are estimated to be in binary systems, two stars orbiting each other. So while the sun is the equivalent of Miss Havisham, lots of stars are happily paired up. They're gravitationally bound together in marriages that last for billions of years. Remember last episode when we talked about the angular momentum problem? The clouds that form stars has lots of angular momentum, 
which stops the stars from collapsing directly. But if you form two stars that orbit each other, or a star with a planetary system that orbits around it, that can help you to solve that problem, because the orbiting objects carry a lot of angular momentum away, and so it's still conserved, it just goes into the rotation of the stars around each other. So most stars are locked in binary orbits, constantly circling around their companion. It's kind of like being shy at the Year 11 disco. Back when I was in Year 11, they, they won't let me in now. You circle around your companion, wondering who's going to make the first move, for billions of years. Then eventually, you either spiral in and merge, or one of you explodes. Okay, so maybe it's not that much like the Year 11 disco after all. The lifetime of a star depends on its initial mass. The heaviest stars live for a much shorter time. The heaviest class of stars is only on the main sequence for 3 million years, compared to the 10 billion for our sun. This is because, although the heavier stars have more hydrogen fuel to burn, they use it up even faster than that. The really exciting stuff in stellar evolution starts to happen when the star runs out of hydrogen to burn in its core. So what happens next depends completely on how heavy the star is, for reasons we'll explain. So first, we'll consider stars that are less than 8 times heavier than the sun. So this will be the fate for the sun too, because it's less than 8 times heavier than the sun. When the core runs out of hydrogen to burn, and is now made of helium, the star begins to collapse. And as layers and layers of the outer hydrogen collapse into the core, it will be hot and dense enough for those hydrogen layers to start undergoing fusion again. The star then expands rapidly into a red giant, because there's fusion in the outer layers that can push the matter further outwards. It's driven by fusion in these outer layers outside the core. By the way, when this does happen to our sun, the sun will probably engulf the earth and all of our leftover plastic bags, nuclear waste and copies of Shrek on DVD. It's red because the surface temperature is much lower than, for example, the sun. Now, it's still emitting a lot of energy. The temperature is lower, but the surface is much bigger because of how far it's expanded. Now, the colour of light is determined by the temperature, and red corresponds to lower temperatures and energies than yellow. The most energetic stars look blue to the surface, because blue is the most energetic wavelength of visible light. So, the core continues to collapse with no fusion to support it. For stars like our sun, it will get dense and hot enough, around 100 million Kelvin, for the helium in the core to suddenly start to fuse, in what's called a helium flash. This helium flash is over in a few seconds, it's like a miniature explosion. For a few seconds, the star produces energy 100 billion times faster than normal. You might be concerned about this happening in the sun, but we'll be dead long before that does happen, so don't panic. But also, all of that energy actually goes into expanding the core. It can't escape and kill us all necessarily. It's like a violent internal eruption, familiar to anyone who's ever eaten at a non-properly franchised outlet. The stars will continue up this chain for a little while, depending on their initial masses, but eventually they run out of fuel. What's left over is usually a very dense core, typically made of carbon and oxygen that have fused up from helium, and outer layers that contain various elements. Now the dense core is eventually going to blow away all of the outer layers by radiation pressure, and all that's left is that core, a white dwarf star. Again, it's white because it's at such a high temperature. Remember, this is the heart of the star, the dense core, where fusion is taking place. So that's the part of the star that's at millions of Kelvin, whereas the outer layers of the star are, you know, relatively cool compared to that. And unless anything interesting happens, it will just remain like this now. The core will stay, it will cool down and radiate away its energy, and it will cool down forever. But it will take billions and billions of years for a white dwarf star to cool down. The universe is 14 billion years old. The oldest white dwarfs we think we've observed are 12 billion years old, and they're still 3,700 Kelvin hot. The universe is, is really too young for white dwarfs to have cooled down already. These white dwarfs, they're the leftover cores of the stars. 
But if fusion isn't occurring, then what pushes out against the gravitational collapse? Remember we talked about stars being this force balance, and for a main sequence star it's fusion pushing outwards, and gravity pushing inwards. Well, the answer to this for white dwarf stars might end up being similar to what stops me from falling through the ground when I step on it. Electrons hate being squished together because of quantum mechanics. If matter gets too dense, it feels an electron degeneracy pressure, which pushes out against the gravitational collapse. So there's a limit to how much you can compress matter before you start feeling this degeneracy pressure. The density has to be really, really high. So the average white dwarf has the mass of the sun, but it's around the size of the Earth. The sun weighs a million times more than the Earth, to give you an idea. So a white dwarf is made of this degenerate matter, where only this force stops further collapse. You would think in the modern age that we've actually figured out why we don't fall through the floor and why I don't fall through the seat that I'm sitting on at the moment. But you can find quite a degree of debate about it. I mean, what produces the reaction force that pushes up against my weight? Well, some people will tell you that it's the electrons in our atoms repelling against each other, so in the atoms of my bum and in the atoms of the sea. But other people will tell you that actually, it starts to get into the realm where this electron degeneracy pressure is important. So the force isn't magnetic, but quantum mechanical in nature. Now I don't know which of these is true, but it's certainly the case that the degeneracy pressure is important in stars. So what happens then if the star's initial mass is higher? The answer is exciting things. With these heavier masses, the gravitational collapse is awfully strong. In the lighter stars, like we talked about before, like our sun, it can be halted by this electron degeneracy pressure. The heavy stars might not know it yet, but electron degeneracy pressure is not going to be enough to stop their core from collapsing. So first the core collapses and starts fusing helium, then carbon, then neon, then oxygen, then silicon, moving to heavier and heavier elements on the periodic table. There are all kinds of wild and crazy reactions going on in the star at this point, and everything's getting faster and faster too, as the core collapse starts to run away with itself. So the hydrogen burning phase for a heavy star like this might last for hundreds of millions of years, but it will burn all of its helium in a few hundred thousand years, and it will burn all of its carbon in 600 years, all of its oxygen in a couple of years, and all of its silicon in around a day. So at each phase, the new fusion of the new elements is, is really just enough to slow down the collapse, and the star is changing rapidly in terms of its size and shape. So the core's collapsing, and it's fusing heavier elements that are slowing down that collapse, but it's still not enough to prevent the collapse. Then the star runs out of silicon, and things really hit the fan. The issue is that once the star has fused silicon, that means that lots of its core is made of iron. And that's a problem, because while all of the lighter elements release energy when they fuse together, iron doesn't. Iron requires energy to fuse together. It's a less favourable configuration to fuse it together. So fusing iron is not going to help you. And that's bad, because it means there's now nothing, no fusion process, that can stop the core's collapse. Even electron degeneracy pressure that supports the white dwarf stars, that's not going to be enough to save the core. So what happens? The answer is, it collapses. On a time scale of a few seconds, with the catastrophically infalling core reaching speeds up to a quarter of the speed of light, it collapses. Fast enough to force together all of the protons and electrons to make neutrons, it collapses. And that releases billions upon billions of high-energy neutrinos, which are the subatomic particles produced when electrons and protons combine. So when you have electron plus proton, you get a neutron and a neutrino. And the neutrinos fly outwards. They're carrying a phenomenal amount of energy that's released by this violent collapse. And through processes we don't really understand, 
they transfer energy to the outer layers of the star, and that explodes in a massive supernova. So let's talk about supernovae. A supernova releases 10 to the 44 joules of energy. That's a 10 with 44 zeros after it. That's enough to power the entire energy consumption of every human on Earth at their current high rates for a trillion trillion years, or longer than the age of the universe. The biggest bomb ever detonated on Earth by the Russians was Tsar Bomba. It had a yield of a few petajoules, and to be honest, that was a big enough nuclear weapon that the Russians really didn't need to detonate it, it was just demonstrating how big one weapon could be. If you wanted to get to the same power as a supernova, you would need 10 octillion Tsar Bombas. That's enough nuclear bombs that they would actually weigh more than a hundred suns. And that kind of makes sense, because the supernova is powered by these nuclear reactions that are much more efficient at producing energy than the reactions that go on in nuclear weapons. So supernovae, at peak power, they can outshine the entire galaxies that contain them, even when the galaxies contain hundreds of billions of stars. Over the course of a few hundred years, a supernova will put out more energy than the sun will in its entire life. So you're probably starting to get the picture. A supernova is a big deal. And of course, supernovae are absolutely vital. When the universe was formed, we think that it was mostly hydrogen, around a quarter helium, and with just traces of the other elements that exist. It would be a boring world if everything was just made of hydrogen and helium. So, yes, the supernovae are responsible for populating the universe with the heavier elements, including the ones that make up you and me. Whenever you look at a lump of gold, you're looking at a supernova remnant. In fact, there's some evidence that perhaps a nearby supernova triggered the formation of our sun from one of those clouds that we started with back in the first episode. The stars indeed died so that you could be here today, listening to my voice. Aren't we all very lucky? With the outer layers of the star blasted off into space in a cataclysmic supernova, we produced, by the way, some of the most beautiful images in astronomy. So Google planetary nebula or supernova remnant if you'd like to drool over what these things look like. But what becomes of the core, the ever-collapsing core? We said that electron degeneracy pressure wasn't going to save it. It probably won't surprise you to hear me say that it depends on the mass. For cores between 8 and 15 solar masses, the core collapses and becomes incredibly dense, so dense that all of the protons and electrons combine into neutrons. Now, only the neutron degeneracy pressure, which stops them from being squeezed any tighter, is strong enough to prevent the star from further collapsing, and we get a neutron star. There's really no other way of putting it. These objects are ridiculous in terms of their density. Mind-bogglingly ridiculous. A teaspoonful of neutron star material weighs 10 million tonnes, as much as a mountain. Of course, if you somehow did manage to remove a teaspoonful of neutron star material from the star, it would explode with the energy of a trillion atomic bombs, so lifting it up would be the least of your problems. A neutron star might be three or four times heavier than the sun, but only 20 kilometres across, so you could fit one pretty comfortably in a decent-sized city. Although, for reasons similar to those mentioned above, actually putting one in a city is a really bad idea. The gravitational field of a neutron star is very strong. How strong? Well, hundreds of billions of times stronger than Earth gravity, but that doesn't really give us a sense for it, does it? Let's imagine that you stood somewhere near a neutron star. Let's say you're one Earth length away from it. The gravity is a million times stronger than that on Earth, though but the difference in gravitational pull between your head and your feet is, a, is about as strong as Earth's gravity. You would be quickly pulled towards the star and slowly pulled apart into spaghetti, which is no one's idea of a good first date. I mean, if you ever got told at school that the atom is mostly empty space and the nucleus is where all of the mass is concentrated, 
well, this is what it would be like if everything had the same density as the nucleus. I mean, that's the sort of density that we're talking about for a neutron star. Now, neutron stars are also rotating rapidly because of conservation of angular momentum, quick enough to whip up incredibly strong magnetic fields, which is what you get when charged particles, of which there are still some, are moving around at a speed. Now, recently, a distant neutron star suffered a sort of earthquake, or to be more accurate, a starquake. And we could actually detect the pulse on Earth because of how the magnetic field changed. So now there's really only one question left for you guys to ask. What happens if the initial mass of the star is greater than 15 solar masses? Remember, we said less than 8, you get a white dwarf. 8 to 15, you get a neutron star. 15 or more, well then, not even neutron degeneracy pressure can prevent the core from collapsing further. The core collapses into an object so dense that nothing, not even light, can escape from it. And this is how black holes are formed. There are so many amazing, fascinating facts about black holes that I know I'm going to have to do another episode to do them justice, so I won't go into too much detail about them here. But it's interesting to think. This is how the universe reacts to matter. Converts it into these weird, inexplicable objects. White dwarfs which cool and fade to nothing. Neutron stars and black holes, these bizarre, dense cores of stars. And as the universe expands and cools, we might expect that the rates of stellar formation are going to go down. Until eventually there are hardly any stars forming at all. But as far as we know, these final state objects are stable forever. The universe may be getting bigger, but it's also getting colder and more degenerate. Now it's amazing to think how these processes, on the ridiculous scales of stars and neutron stars and black holes, they're dictated by processes that occur on the very smallest scales between nuclei, electrons and protons. The very small links with the cataclysmically massive, and we see this all the time in physics. And that, broadly, is how stars are born, how they live, and how they die. There are plenty of fascinating, intricate little details that are left out. There are loads of weird objects that can form in all kinds of bizarre ways through different processes, and lots of caveats that I left aside. One thing I do like, though, is that quite often a binary star system can be disrupted by another interloper star coming in and basically stealing one of the stars away, or else just destroying their orbit together. So, you know, the analogy with people, you can take it quite a long way if you want to. This picture, though, I hope is broadly accurate. And it's really pretty remarkable that we can piece it together just by observing space, working out the laws of nuclear physics and gravity and electromagnetism on Earth, and using logic and computer simulations to smooth out the rough edges. This theory took hundreds and hundreds of geniuses to construct, and I think we're indebted to all of them for helping us see just how bizarre and how beautiful the processes that are going on in the universe around us all the time really are. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. We've got a lot of stuff planned for the upcoming episodes, but I'd really like to hear any feedback that you guys have about how you've enjoyed it so far and other things that you'd like to hear about. So you can contact us. Uh, Twitter is physicspod. Uh, you should be able to email us to physicspodoutlook.com. Until then, talk nerdy to me. Thank